and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I want to start off with a quick note about last week's episode. Thanks to all of you who told me that you appreciated it. Michael Redder told me that they have had a bunch of new people joining the QBNA, Queer Birders in North America Facebook group. That is fantastic. I I love connecting people with resources that they want, that they need, or just that they appreciate having around. I, I do usually get a few comments on the rare occasion we touch on these sorts of issues, both supportive comments and critical comments, more the, more the former than the latter, to be clear. Uh, but I do want to state, you know, right off the bat, why I think these things are important, why I think that they're so important that I would cover them here in this podcast. So I, if you have not figured out, I am a, I am a straight white male birder, which is hardly unusual in the birding community. It is sort of the default experience uh, for much of history. I, I think I'm a bit younger than the norm, uh, but I seem to be closing that gap with every passing year. Um, shout out to the inexorable passage of time. I, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk with people whose experiences in the burning community, at, I don't know, why stop there, in, in the world are different than mine. I am someone that likes to know things. And in that way, birding, with its seemingly inexhaustible amount of things to learn and to know is a very natural sort of pastime for me. That that acquisition of knowledge of facts, however relevant, frequently irrelevant, has been a running theme throughout my life and informs a lot of the things that I enjoy, uh, be they nature, be they sports, be they sort of odd historical tidbits. I know I'm not alone here, and I think I can speak for all of us when I say that the internet age has been pretty spectacular for people like me who like random, trivial bits of knowledge. Um, but the one thing that I cannot collect, like so many ticks on my checklist, are the experiences of other people. So I've always found it really beneficial for me to talk to people whose experiences are different than mine, uh, to get that context, to, to understand how my world is different from yours. So, yeah, when, when I talk to the queer birders of North America, the, the Feminist Bird Club, or Drew Lanham about birding as a black man, about the world that they inhabit, which is similar, but not quite identical to, to mine, I do want to take that information and, and then apply it in ways that make birding, you know, make the world easier, more fun, more about birding and not about other stuff. And I know that for a lot of people, birding is supposed to be an escape from, you know, quote unquote, the world. And, and I get that. I really, I really get that. Um, but for a lot of friends, it's, it's not that. And I would even argue that for us, it's not really that either. Because I know as birders that we are sort of witnesses to a lot of environmental concerns. And I think we sort of incorporate that into our birding in a really natural way. Uh, we talk about how it's not as cold as it used to be. It's it's wetter. Um, this place used to be great for meadowlarks. This place used to be a fallow field, and now it's this beautiful wetland. We we see that happening, and we we don't seem to have an issue with that as birders. So, you know, knowing context, knowing things like I know to look for a sparrow in a certain habitat at a certain time of year. This is all very useful stuff. So, I guess you know what I'm saying is that you will continue to hear 
that in this space from time to time. I, I won't be everything you hear. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we cover a lot of ground in this podcast, but I do try to get some great people on the podcast. And even if it's a subject that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, I, I do hope you stick with it. Or if you don't, you know, just skip to the end. I, I have no way of knowing anyway. On the show today, birding editor Ted Floyd went south of the border. He thinks you should go to that is towards the end of the episode. But first, we are going to talk breeding bird atlases, how they work, why they matter, and how you can get involved with Maryland DC BBA coordinator Gabriel Foley. All that after the Raybirds. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the middle of February 2020. I have three birds that I want to share with you today. The first, a spectacular Siberian accenter, was seen in Cowlitz County, Washington, just north of Ridgefield National Wildlife Refuge, and actually not far from Portland, Oregon. Uh, this is Washington's third and the first in 30 years of all the East Asian vagrants that touch down in North America, I have to say Siberian Accenter is one of the coolest. I'd like to think that's pretty objective. Uh, there's a reason it's the cover bird for the Howell Russell Lewington Raybirds of North America book. Sort of a sparrow crammed into a bluebird's body, but orangey. Anyway, uh, very cool bird. One of those species for which most of North America's records come from Western Alaska, where it is annual or nearabouts, uh, much, much less common in the mainland, even less so in the lower 48. There are a couple first records to report, including another from East Asia, a white wagtail seen near Austin, Texas, represents a first for that state, which is always a big deal. Texas has more than 600 species on its state list. You know how the saying goes, everything is bigger, including the list of birds seen within its relatively arbitrary boundaries. Uh, for those who are interested in such things, this is of the widespread Ocularis subspecies. That is the one that breeds across northern Russia and even into northern Alaska a little bit. It's the most common subspecies of vagrant white wagtail recorded in North America. And in North Carolina, a bronzed cowbird has been visiting a feeder in Carteret County. This is also a state first. The hulking red-eyed bird has been seen by many in the few days it has been present. Bronzed cowbird is primarily a bird of the south-central and southwest part of the ABA area, but it has been expanding eastward for the last few years. It is now quite regular in Florida, and there are records in Maine, Nova Scotia, and New York as well. And South Carolina. There are records in Maine, South Carolina, Nova Scotia, and New York. That is about it for rarities in the ABA area for this period for all the rarities, including those that didn't make it into this roundup, please check out the Rare Bird Alert Hub at the ABA website. You can find that at aba.org slash RBA every Friday. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare or on our rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Many states and provinces are increasingly interested in undertaking a comprehensive survey of the birds in their, in their regions. And with the help of technology, this ambitious undertaking is more achievable than ever. Uh, maybe you've heard of breeding bird atlases. Maybe you've participated in them in the past. Uh, but it's easy to get involved with this important conservation and natural history initiative. I am joined now by Gabriel Foley. He is the atlas coordinator for the Maryland Breeding Bird Atlas, which is one of many such atlases ongoing in the United States. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Nate. It's great to be here. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about 
the Maryland Breeding Bird Atlas. What sort of prompted this initiative and, and how did you get involved? So I got to give a shout out to DC here. It's, it's the Maryland and DC. And DC, right. Yeah. yeah. They get left off. They're counted as like a a county in Maryland with this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I got involved with it, um, pretty much through my, I I mean, through the job application. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw the ad while I was still up in, in Canada in Saskatchewan and uh, I love Reading Bird Atlases, I think they are an awesome application of community science. So when I saw the ad, um, I decided to apply and here I am. Have you participated in Breeding Bird Atlases as a as a I don't know, as a participant, not as a coordinator, but as just someone who's going out and, and getting that data? Yeah, yeah. Um Saskatchewan is actually going through year four of their wow. Breeding Bird Atlas. So I was involved there. And uh, South Africa also has an ongoing atlas. Uh, Theirs is a little bit different, though, because most of the atlases here in North America are done in, like, five-year periods. Mm -hmm. Down there, it's all year round, all the time. Hmm. Yeah, so it's just like, it's less a breeding bird atlas and more of a just like a a bird atlas, like this intensive project to find everything. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So what does a uh, what does what do these breeding bird atlases sort of entail? Um, you know, what goes into preparing to do one? Oh, uh, <laughs> a lot. Um, they are. I mean, they're pretty massive undertakings, really. Um, you're, you're basically you're trying to sample, get a detailed sample of an entire region at a pretty small scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to organize hundreds, often thousands of volunteers, and you want to make sure that all those data are being collected in a way that's pretty sound and rigorous. So the planning usually starts a year or two in advance of the Atlas starting. And um, there's there's usually a steering committee that kind of guides the overall project direction and a coordinator like me who kind of uh, makes sure that things are running smoothly. Mm-hmm. So do you have any uh, buy-in from the local department of natural resources or environmental resources or whatever they call it in different states? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the department of natural resources in Maryland is one of the main funders of the project. And then the other funder is the Maryland ornithological society. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a huge level of support here in yeah, Maryland and DC for the Atlas. Um, it's, it's a real point of pride for people here. Um, Chandler Robbins was oh, yeah, a yeah. biologist in Maryland at Patuxent. And he was the guy who basically heard about Atlases happening over in Europe and brought yeah. them over here to North America, tried uh, them out in some Maryland counties and expanded it to the state. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. He also developed uh, the Breeding Birds Surveys, which yeah. is, you know, this decades-long right. uh, community science initiative. Uh, very similar. How How is a Breeding Bird Atlas different or, or similar to those Breeding Bird Surveys that people might be already pretty familiar with? Yeah, yeah. So, Breeding Bird Survey and Breeding Bird Atlas. Uh, the Breeding Bird Survey is this continent-wide initiative Mm -hmm. uh, where very experienced observers go out into the field and they perform 
three-minute point counts uh, where they go to a, a specified location and they, mm -hmm. they listen for three minutes and identify all the birds that they can see or hear. And then they travel uh, a, another, uh, is it a kilometer or a mile? Usually a half remember. mile. Half yeah, mile. I have like three of them, so <laughs> I'm familiar with the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, and then they do that again for, you know, until their, their route is done. Yeah. So yeah. it's... They've, this has been running since the 60s across the continent, and it provides a good picture of how bird populations are changing at a continent scale. But, you know, um, it's a little bit coarse. If you want to see how a specific region's birds are doing um, at a more detailed scale, that's where an atlas comes in. And it can show you the, the regions usually split up into a grid. Um, here in Maryland and D.C., we do three-by-three-mile blocks, and observers go into each of those blocks, and they identify all the birds that they can find and how likely they are to be breeding. And so it's a, it's a little less um, standardized, um, but you, you're also covering the whole area at a, at a more detailed scale. So for the breeding bird survey, you get a good picture of how continent level populations are are doing breeding bird atlas gives you a, a good picture of how things are happening at a small scale but with hmm. a lot more detail yeah is it is it easy to get to convince people to participate in these sort of volunteer efforts because to to one extent it it seems like you know people are going to be birding anyway you know they might as well keep track of what they're seeing to this, you know, stand this protocol that you have established and submit it to the breeding bird atlas. But on the other hand, people like to go birding to like the same places every time, which is great. But it also means that some parts may be out of the way, maybe not as attractive uh, as a birding location might get might get undercovered. And for a breeding bird atlas, like you really need to go into those places where people don't bird very often sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, people are are often really excited to be involved with with mm. the project, yeah. um, but a lot of them also want to do their their favorite block or the <laughs> right. block that's in their yeah, home. local patches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, but um, one of the great things about an atlas is that it can get you out of places that you're most familiar with mm -hmm. and into places that are less covered and you never know what you're going to find when you get into these places and not just for yourself either. A lot of these places, they just don't have much coverage. So you yeah. can, you can find things that nobody's found before. Yeah. Yeah. Unusual birds or even like brand new hotspots that could become really popular places to bird down yeah. the road as well. Exactly. So when, when you took on this, this project, did you look at other Atlas projects that are sort of, either ongoing or relatively recently finished in other states as a model? Yeah. I mean, by now, most atlases are more or less being run the same way. There's a North American Atlas Committee or something like that, and they've produced a document and they've said, you know, here are the things that an atlas should do to be successful. And um, so that is kind of where the framework comes from. But things are changing in the last five years or so um, with the the use of eBird. Yeah, I would imagine. Atlases. Uh, Wisconsin was the first 
place to use eBird as the method to collect data. And now a number of places, including Maryland and DC, have adopted it because it it is it's an ideal tool to mm-hmm. find uh, to collect atlas data with. Yeah, because I imagine you know the the important thing about atlas data if you're going to use that use it to you know make assumptions about bird population changes is you know getting things like the distance traveled or the time you spent out in the field or the and in particular like the time that you were surveying this place and i think there's a whole generation of birders uh, myself included and probably you as well who um see birding and like e-birding as the one and the same like they you can't separate them they are they are the same thing so yeah. you're, you're you're very much used to being conscious of that sort of important data uh, i imagine that's gonna be really helpful for people who are who are tackling these breeding bird atlas projects well it just it gives you so much more power with your data um you know in the past observers would go out and they'd go into their block and all of the observations would be recorded at that block level so Mm -hmm. you know the birds that occur within this three mile by three mile area but you don't know where in there they were found right yeah you don't know the the habitat matrix i guess is the term that yeah likes to use yeah yeah and uh you know you, you only have essentially one record of a species per year uh, with the highest breeding code, you know, whether that that was like that you found the nest or that you just heard it singing or, um, and now with eBird, we get every single observation from pretty much exactly where that bird was seen um, across the whole five years. So it just completely transforms the, the power of the data that you have. Yeah, I've thought, you know, I kind of talked about when I interviewed uh, one of the eBird guys about their new status and trends maps that came out last year and that they've just recently announced that they've expanded to the in- entire Americas. I imagine you got that email uh, last week that said how many of your observations yeah. were used. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm, I'm such a sucker for those kind of maps, those, you know, dynamic bird movement maps. Oh, and so cool. They are. They really are. And, um, it's amazing to me the way that our concept of range maps has changed over the last few years, mm. be- largely because of those maps. Because when you look at like an old map in a field guide, in a traditional field guide, even something that recently came out, there are these kind of amorphous blobs that are just kind of stuck on the on that tiny little thumbnail map. And, you know, that's not to say that someone like Paul Lehman, who does all the maps for the North American Field Guides, hasn't <laughs> just put a ton of work into creating those maps. But seeing the maps on such a fine scale that those eBird status and distribution maps come up, it tells us so much more about, you know, what places are important for birds and, and what places we need to, like, prioritize for conservation efforts and, and all sorts of kind of neat things like that besides you know, knowing exactly where to go to find a, a bird that you really want to see. Yeah. Do you do you feel like you have to make that sell when you're trying to get people involved in these breeding bird atlases? Because, you know, the breeding bird atlas, the idea is like, um, you know, maybe it's a little stodgy. It's been going on for, for we've been doing it for a very long time, but there's so much more you can do now. Um, do you, can, are you able to make a sell to regular birders as opposed to birders who, you know, primarily think of these things in terms of conservation? Hmm. You know, I, I don't really think so. I think that, that 
most of the folks that I've interacted with regarding the Atlas, they are very aware of the conservation value that not just a single Atlas has, but repeating an Atlas has. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to see that change over time at the detailed scale that an Atlas provides. Um, I think that the the bigger challenge this time around is um, you have folks who are coming in as as new atlasers mm-hmm. and you just tell them okay here use this app on your phone and record all the birds that you see and they're like cool i can do that um but then you have the folks who have been you know atlasing in the past and they're used to clipboards and pens <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way it was done and you kind of have to retrain them and um that is probably the the bigger challenge the, these folks they're really excited about the atlas and uh a lot of them they they do use eBird, but there's still things that uh, you kind of have to. It's it's a bit of a different mindset for someone who has atlas in the past. Hmm. You know, looking for a bird once, confirming it, and moving on. Yeah. N- now where you're recording everything all the time. Yeah, and it is interesting how the way how eBird has kind of been at the center of that changing your mindset about uh, yeah. birding. I think it definitely has made us all. I don't want to say better birders, but certainly more conscientious of that sort of thing. Um, you know, speaking of someone that's been, you know, beating the eBird drum for some time, when I first started doing it, you know, it was kind of a difficult to encourage people to change the way they bird, like no more super long trip lists on your way to the coast. No more, right. you know, where yes. you, everything exactly. is thrown in on one list. You kind of have to think a little more about habitat changes and more kind of, you know, splitting those things up. And, and now that's people seem to very, very much intuit that um, it's much easier to make that sell. And I imagine that makes it what you're trying to do with the breeding bird Atlas a little bit easier as well. Cause it seems very cl- much closer to what eBird is already doing to the birding community. Yeah. The two, the two really fit well together. Yeah. Um, I imagine one of the, one of the things that people who are already active eBirders but aren't familiar with atlases have to remember though is that the grid system that three by three mile block system is kind of the foundation of how the atlas measures things and so you've got to be aware of where your your checklist goes it can't cross the boundaries of a block because otherwise you're reporting birds from two different blocks in Mm. one block so you you have to know where your block boundaries are. And right now that's, it's actually not that easy. Um, you, we have, of course, like paper maps that you can print out, or you can, you know, look at Google earth on your phone. We've got a, a block grid layer there, but oh, cool! you can't just go into the app and look at the grid and see where you are. Or anything. That's almost like a Christmas bird count that way. Like yeah, <laughs> you yeah, don't want exactly. to double count with the, the team on the neighboring um, count, <laughs> count area in the circle, <laughs> or maybe That's you right. do, maybe you want to poach the birds, but now in the breeding bird atlas, you definitely don't want to. Have you, have you learned anything about birding in general that you sort of have picked up by being involved in these atlases that might be new to you? I mean, yeah. Um, when you're just out birding, it, it's the, uh, it's finding a bird and it's identifying it. That's kind of the main goal. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, depending on what kind of a birder you are, you understanding and learning behavior is often very interesting. And we do lots of that, but it's not the main, the main focus. 
With an atlas, though, you have to determine how likely those birds are to be breeding. And to do that, you've got to, you've got to watch their behavior. Um, you know, it's while finding a nest is great. That's, it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. <laughs> yeah. So you, you got to watch the bird's behavior. And it's, it's that focusing in on the common birds and following their behavior that I think really it, it takes atlasing. It, it makes atlasing different from just birding. Hmm. So you've talked a lot about breeding codes. What constitutes a breeding code? So a breeding code is um, you, you're basically taking the behavior of a bird, a behavior that's related to breeding, and you're you're assigning it into one of I think there's 22 different codes, and each of these codes um, kind of indicates how likely it is that a bird is is breeding there. Um, you can have things like a bird is in the right habitat or a yeah. bird is singing, and that's okay. Um, it's you know, it might be breeding, but it's not really very good evidence. If you see a pair or if you see a bird chasing another bird of the same species or something like that, well, that's that's better evidence. And, of course, if you find a nest or fledged chicks, that's yeah. great evidence. Gold standard, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so you're, you're kind of, you're trying to look for the, the best evidence that you can find, yeah. but classifying it using one of these codes. Yeah, I know eBird has put that stuff in there regular protocol in the past and I've used it on and off um, whenever I've seen fledglings mostly because that's like you know that there's breeding going on if you right, find baby right. birds so yeah so how can people get involved in you know maybe not just the Maryland DC atlas but also you know atlases in general that I know I, do you know of any other states that are currently you know pursuing atlas projects I know my state of North Carolina is just getting started on it. It sounds like Maryland, D.C. is well on their way uh, into it. Um, do you know of any other places and that are actively atlasing? Yeah, yeah. Saskatchewan, of course, um, mm -hmm. they're into year four. Wisconsin just wrapped theirs up. Mm -hmm. Virginia, this is their final right. year. Yeah. Uh, Maine has been doing an atlas as well. New York is also starting theirs up right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think that's all of them. Oh, wow. That's quite a few. That's a lot of, probably a lot of people who would listen to this might be interested in getting involved. How, how can people get involved? Um, I believe, yeah, everything that I just mentioned, they're all doing it, well, except for Saskatchewan, but uh, they're all doing it through eBird. So if you go and search, you know, whatever atlas, Virginia breeding bird atlas, Maine mm -hmm. atlas, whatever, and then eBird, it'll come up. Um, the, the difference is with the atlases, um, if you want to participate, it's all done through eBird, but mm -hmm. the Atlas data has to have a specific label that lets the Atlas know, okay, yeah. this was collected by an observer who knew about the Atlas who protocols. Who was doing a specific protocol, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it can't just be any general eBird checklist, even if it has breeding codes. So the way to add that label is to use what's called a, you know, an eBird portal. Okay. And so each Atlas has their own atlas portal and that's how you um how you enter in information and usually how you learn more about the project so if a regular e-birder is going out and birding their local patch like they they always do and they enter that data as into that portal is that data still used by the atlas system or do you have to like yeah you have to check with the people who are running the atlas and make sure that they know that you're doing it 
No, you just have to enter a checklist into the Atlas into portal. The portal. Yep. Oh, wow. That's very easy. <laughs> it is. It, it is very easy. Um, I mean, really, the, there aren't that many differences between just general eBirding and doing an Atlas eBird checklist. The biggest thing is being aware of those block boundaries and understanding how and when to use breeding codes. Yeah. So let, let's say, um, hypothetically, there's a really great birding location, a National Wildlife Refuge or whatever. Do you make sure to include that in a block or do, can it get broken up by a block? Because it seems like you would, even if it didn't quite match the block boundaries you find everywhere, you might want to make sure that, you know, one really great birding hotspot is in the same block. That way, even people who are submitting their eBird won't right. run awry of that, uh, that boundary problem. So overall, uh, the block boundaries are the block boundaries, regardless of what else is around us. You, you've got to know where those things are. But um, in Maryland and DC, we, we've asked folks to try and submit checklists um, that are it, it, like say that you're going to be birding a, a national wildlife refuge, mm -hmm. keep your checklist just for the wildlife refuge when you okay. submit, um, when you submit it into the Atlas. So you, you're kind of doing both of those things. You're watching the block boundaries and the public land boundary. And the reason is just that it's a lot easier to apply Atlas data to something that's publicly owned or intended yeah. for conservation. I imagine rates. so. Yeah. So. I was thinking like Assateague, like everyone goes to Assateague right. in the late summer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, you probably get a ton of stuff from there, but you want to make sure that it's like abiding by the boundaries because you, that probably is a lot of really good data. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thanks so much, uh, Gabriel. Uh, you can find Gabriel on Twitter. It is at Bird Nerd, Foley Nerd with an I. You can learn all about the Maryland and D.C. Bird Atlas there. And um, is there a website that people can find stuff about? Oh, it's the portal, right? Ebird.org yeah. slash. Yeah. Slash Atlas MDDC. Just there search you go. All right. Maryland Breeding Bird Atlas. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Gabriel. Oh, it was great. I enjoyed it, Nick. Nate. Nate. Nate, Nate Swick, <laughs> Nick, you know. <laughs> I know, people just skip the middle part. It's a bird code thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I'm standing on a quiet road in the mountains. It's cool, misty. Tall pine trees dominate the landscape. As to the birds, broad-tailed hummingbirds in a flower-filled clearing... Audubon's warblers in the pines, a plumbeous vireo peeking in for a quick view, overhead a common raven soaring. If you've ever gone birding in my home state of Colorado, I suspect you'll agree that that's a pretty plausible depiction of Rocky Mountain National Park or any one of the numerous national forests in the region. Then I hear it. Ah! Louder than any raven a pair of military macaws blasting their way through a fog bank. They came out of nowhere without any advance notice. The whole experience was over in, what, ten seconds? But it will last with me forever. It's a top ten birding highlight of my life for sure. Probably top five. Offhand, I can't really say that any previous birding experience of mine topped that one. This is what my friend Jason Ward refers to as peak birding. 
I assume it's obvious by now, but just in case. I most emphatically was not in Colorado when those macaws startled and delighted me. I was in the pine forests above San Blas, in the Mexican state of Nayarit, on the Pacific coast. In those mighty mountains with their familiar warblers and vireos, there were also Mexican wood nymphs and bumblebee hummingbirds tending wildflowers, olivaceous and white-striped woodcreepers hitching their way up tree trunks, rufous-bellied chachalacas cackling mirthfully, brown-backed solitaires singing their impossibly brilliant songs, and of course the ear-splittingly loud macaws blasting through the fog. Here's the deal. All those birds, and a great many more, are ridiculously accessible to birders in the ABA area. You have to get there, of course, but getting there doesn't stop birders from going to Texas or Florida or New England. And the flight to the west coast of Mexico is considerably shorter than a lot of domestic flights. Once you're there, the logistical experience is much the same as in the U.S. and Canada. They have Wi-Fi and ATM machines, ride-sharing and Google Maps, eBird hotspots and coffee shops. Sort of embarrassed to have to say this, but the roads are efficient, the hotels are modern, and yes, the water is safe. As to the language barrier, good luck finding a guide or driver or clerk who doesn't speak English. On the way home from my all-too-brief visit to San Blas, I had to ask myself a question. Why did it take me so long to get down there? In three days of birding around San Blas at my preferred pace of casual intensity, I saw 30-plus lifebirds, and that's coming from someone who'd been south of the U.S. border at least 20 times previously. It's winter now, of course, in Colorado, but the warblers and vireos and hummingbirds will be coming back to the mountains near home soon enough. They're in western Mexico now, a reminder that it's a small world. They're there with macaws and motmots and trogons and potus and so much more. What are you waiting for? The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. As always, we are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast and the ABA is to become a member. Do you love birds? Do you love birders and birding? Then you need to join the ABA. You'll get some great magazines, access to discounts from our friends and sponsors, and the knowledge that you are helping to support the birding community in the U.S., Canada, and everywhere else. You can learn more at aba.org slash join or check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. I want to make a special shout out to Spencer England of Westminster, Colorado, John Ossier of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Mallory Webb of Grand Rapids, Michigan, William Ackerman of Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, Liam Reagan of Victoria, British Columbia, Gregory Joyner of Lubbock, Texas, Gene McMillan of Tocoa, Georgia, Michelle Barkley of Calgary, Alberta, and Zachary Coleman of Battleboro, Vermont, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as one of the reasons. Thank you all for that. If you're feeling especially generous to me, you can go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. It provides us with great feedback and helps other bird-friendly people find us. Thank you for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's looking for volunteers willing to count blood pheasant, blood-colored woodpecker, 
blood-breasted flower pecker and the many pigeons of the genus Gallicolumba. You know, a bleeding bird atlas. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's he's actually making a thesaurus uh, made up of entirely of euphemisms for those uncomfortable with waterfowl mating behaviors. It's called a breeding word atlas. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, whose incredible work censusing the massive northern gannet breeding colony at Cape St. Mary's, Newfoundland, might be more accurately described as a bleating bird atlas. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are passionate advocates for keeping pet felines indoors while neighborhood birds are fledging, especially when neighborhood birds are fledging. It is so critical to keep our breeding birds catless. Questions and comments come to me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.